Hello, and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Somewhere along your journey, have you had a profound experience that completely altered your life's course? Maybe it occurred while abroad exploring the world and encountering new cultures. Maybe it was in your own backyard after you saw your home in a new light. Or perhaps you encountered a particular plant or animal on a trail that emotionally moved you. Now, what if that profound experience inspired you to start a whale project in a remote Mexican village when you yourself are not a whale expert or researcher? That's what happened to today's guest, Katerina Audley, founder of the Whales of Guerrero Project. Born in Alaska, Katerina grew up all over the United States following her father as he fixed the nation's railroad system. When it came time to go to university, she first thought she was going to become a classical flutist, but switched her major to ancient religion. After school, she spent the following three years traveling all over Greece and Europe having the time of her life. When she returned to California in 1997, she landed a job at the Exploratorium, an immersive science museum where she learned to write articles and got to hang around some of the best science educators in the industry. Five years into the job, she took a sabbatical to Mexico and completely fell in love with the little fishing village Cabara de Potosi. She returned year after year, becoming a part of the community, and noticed that their livelihood was dwindling as less and less fish were caught by the fishermen. See a need, fill a need, as the saying goes. She had a pure love of whales by this point and followed whale researchers around the world writing about their work. So, one day, she had the idea of starting a community-driven, sustainable whale tourism and research project, and the rest is history. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening and share your favorite episode with a friend or two that might enjoy it. Also, if you want to stay up to date on everything the podcast is getting into and things I find interesting, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up to receive monthly emails from me. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Katerina. Thank you, Katerina, so much for coming on today on the Rewildology podcast and very excited to get into your story and just how unique it is compared to a lot of guests we've had on the show. So let's start there. How did your journey unfold? Take us back a couple of notches in, in your timeline here. Where did you grow up and what did you originally pursue as your career? Okay, um, so I, well, I was born in Alaska, in Ketchikan, Alaska, and I grew up all over the U.S. My dad worked for Amtrak, and so we moved around a lot, fixing up the railroad. I moved to California when I was 19. Uh, first, I went to music school in Philadelphia and got a, was planning on being a classical flutist, and then uh, dropped out of music school. Moved to California and um, got my state residency and got into Berkeley. And at Berkeley, I got a degree in ancient religion and uh, graduated from there and thought, oh, I'm going to go move to Greece because I my degree was in ancient Greek religion and the origins of Christianity. So I thought, oh, I'm going to like go go learn with my body now. I've just been in books my whole life and I'm going to learn in another way, in a really physical way. And I thought I would just go to Greece with my flute and busk and get some get some life experience under my belt and come back and get my PhD. And when I got to Greece, I moved to Crete because it was a very agricultural society. And I thought it would be interesting to see how men and women live differently in a place like that because it wasn't like that in Berkeley, California. So I showed up and I was like 22 years old and um, didn't speak Greek. I spoke, I spoke ancient Greek only. I had like $300 to my name and I like walked into a bar and was like, I'm looking to have a job. Like, do you need a gardener or uh, you need a flutist or something? And maybe there's <laughs> a dig, I could help you dig. And there's no digging. I mean, it was, everybody was back at school and they were like, well, yeah, I, I can get you a job. And so they took me to a bar and um, the bar was all men and me. And I, they were, that bar guy saw me and I was blonde and young and said, oh, can you dance? And I was like, 
sure I can dance. I like dancing. You know, I mean, I didn't, I don't really, I just like, you know, moving around. <laughs> and uh, so he gave me uh, 50 drachmas and told me to go and get a dress like Cindy Crawford wears was how he described it. And I came back the next night and the word had gotten out in this little village that there was a new bar girl. And so the village, the bar was just packed with men and they were ready to see me dance. And I walked in and that was my first night as a bar girl. Oh my God, and uh, I ended up, <laughs> yeah. Oh. And so I did not end up learning anything about archeology span but I learned a lot about people. And uh, I started to write that year cause I was just very, very lonely. This was like 1995. And so I was, I was very lonely and you didn't have internet back then or phones. So you couldn't just like call people and stay in touch. So when you traveled, you were totally, totally away from everybody. And uh, so I spent a year there working in bars and going through all kinds of drama. And that's for another time. But that was my background to start with. So I basically did all kinds of wild stuff around Europe for a few years and moved back to the Bay Area and got myself a job. At, so I was gone for three years and I came back and it was San Francisco in 1997 and the dot-com thing had just started. The internet had just been born. And so everybody was working in startups and we're like, we're going to be rich and you should work in a startup and you can get stock options. And there's this place named Google and they have a ball pit and a slide and a sous chef and it's awesome. And I thought that sounded really dumb and I didn't want to go work at Google or anywhere. And so instead I decided I was going to be a poet. So I started working, trying to publish my writing and did get some stuff published, but you don't really make much of a living getting your poems published. They don't pay. And, uh, Eventually, I stumbled into a very, very cool science museum called the Exploratorium, and it's in San Francisco. Have you heard of it? No, but that sounds phenomenal. What, what's like? What's it about, or what's the theme, or, or um, what's their thing? So the Exploratorium is the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception. Whoa. So the hands-on museum that uh, opens up your own inquiry. So it makes you curious. It wakes you up. You go in and you try stuff and you learn about the physics phenomena behind the different exhibits. And it makes you look at the world more deeply around you. And I was a really cocky young thing and like 26, 27 years old. And I just thought I knew everything and I wasn't getting where I wanted to be in life. I wanted to like do big things and make a difference and have meaning. And I was getting offered dumb jobs as like a secretary, but they wouldn't even hire me as a secretary because I could type, right? So I thought, oh, well, I always would get jobs typing for people. And, but they wouldn't hire me full-time because they could tell I was a runner and that I wasn't gonna like stick around with any kind of job. I had too much travel in me and too much wanderlust and they could smell it on me. So nobody would hire me and I didn't, have any money. So I couldn't go to school and I didn't really want to go back and study ancient religion anymore because I had learned so much about the world. And I felt like academics were pretty separated from the world. And I wanted to be in the world and a part of it, not studying it and thinking about it from the outside. So this museum, it had all these people who were scientists and artists and makers and thinkers, and they were all smart. They were smarter than me and they knew how to work and they knew how to make big things happen. And I thought, I need to work around these people. I need to know. I'm going to learn how to work with people if I work here. So I spent the next five years at the Exploratorium working with all kinds of people, making museum exhibits and um, learning about interviewing. I learned um, to write HTML and we made outdoor guidebooks to the museum where you could go wandering around. And I got to be around all those great teachers that are the kind of teachers that make you wanna be a scientist when you grow up. And um, I, it was kind of like a master's degree in a way, like being at the Exploratorium for five years. And I had a whole bunch of jobs and a big wad of keys to get into every department as I bopped around. And so five years later, I was kind of bored. Like I felt like I'd gotten what I needed to there. And every five years at the Exploratorium, you got a sabbatical. 
So I went to Mexico and I'd never been to Mexico. I'd been to every state in the US because of Amtrak and I had lived in Europe and um, I spoke uh, some Spanish and I spoke Greek, but I didn't, um, I just never thought Mexico was anything for me. And my uncle was there. He had a house on the beach and a girlfriend who was Mexican. And I was like, well, I'll go to Mexico. And I got there and it was in this um, little village. Uh, he was near a little village named Barra de Potosí. And I got off the plane in Zihuatanejo and I stepped off and I just got full of joy. I just felt happy and, and just felt just light and awake and went to the beach and I'm a fisherman. I've, I've commercial fished and I come from a long line of fishermen. So I went to the beach and, and his house was on the beach and I would sit there in the hammock and watch the waves and read my books. And I couldn't believe how fishy it was. It was like every fourth wave had a big fish in it and you would get into the water and the fish would smack your legs. <laughs> so, yeah. And I started talking to local fishermen and asking them to take me fishing with them. And I went out and um, we would just catch like dinner in 20 minutes. You could pull up a few red snappers and a mahi-mahi. And so it's just this very alive place. So that is how I fell in love with Mexico. And then at the same time, while I was working in the Exploratorium, I was about 27 and I started having dreams about whales. And I never really thought about whales. I just like, they didn't, I always loved the ocean and nature and figured I'd do something with animals, but I'm too squeamish to be a vet and too tenderhearted really. And um, I'm not very good at math and I'm, I'm not a good test taker. Uh, so I really bombed my SATs and I couldn't get into the GREs. I had talked my way out of having taken math in high school. And so I wasn't able to, I couldn't have gotten into grad school if I tried. And um, so I, I, I just fell in love with whales at the Exploratorium and I, I basically was just dreaming about them. So I would, I would dream about whales every night. I would have this dream where I would go down to the beach and go into the water and be breathing underwater and go to the Golden Gate Bridge. And there were many golden, there were great white sharks by the Golden Gate Bridge. And I thought, um, I was very afraid of the great white sharks, but in my dream, if whales came near me, then I was safe. And I was safe when the whales were close because they gave me the ability to see the true nature of life around me. And it was like, it gave me this weird video game-esque battery for a temporary insight into people. And so I would have this recurring dream that was similar to just like the view outside my window. And that's what got me thinking about whales. So I started thinking about it and was like, I need to go see a whale. So I saved up my money and there was no real whale watching at that time in the San Francisco area. There weren't that many whales back then compared to now. And I went out to the Farallon Islands and I saw my first whale and it was super far away. It was just a tiny little fluke in the distance, but that is how I got hooked on whales. So yeah, so very, very long, long uh, story about me. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how the whale piece came into place. So fast forward another, gosh, uh, 12 years, and I've been chasing whales around the world. I've been uh, working as a volunteer all over the world. And all I wanted to do was be near whales and just study, study, study them. And so I was like a whale scientist fangirl. And I would go and like, I wrote a little zine about whales called Woosh, the zine for whale lovers to like trick the scientists into letting me hang out with them. <laughs> and I would just go and, and, and spend time on their research projects and go to sea. And sometimes I would volunteer for longer periods. And I went to all of these whale hotspots and I got to see and learn a lot about whale science. And I got to learn a lot about scientists and um, how whale watching can really help places and how it can really hurt places and um, how people are the problem and the solution to whale, um, anything that bothers whales or the ocean. So in 2011, I got married. I married, my husband's an American man, but I married him on the beach in Barra de Potosí. At, um, and I feel like when I got married, 
in Barra de Potosi in 2011, I married the beach as much as I married my husband, like in sickness and health till death do we part, all of that. I feel like I made my vows to that place. And having 80 people come from around the world and spend a week on the beach with us, like that place had been going through a hard time. I had stayed, I kept going back to that place where my uncle was over and over and over, over the years. And I saw the place declining after there had been the swine flu and there had been some cartel violence and all of that had come together to really crash any kind of tourism that had been happening in the area. And so after my wedding and having seen how well it did just to have a few people come and do a little bit of tourism in the form of my wedding party and my friends in, in, in the village were doing a little bit better for a moment just because of the tourism, I thought, well, maybe I can help this place. Maybe I can help them with more tourism. And I knew there were humpback whales there. I'd seen them when I was fishing and I'd seen several different kinds of dolphins and there was nothing like that going on out there. But I also had seen how badly tourism could go if um, people could really love those whales and dolphins to death. And so I saw an opportunity and I also saw a risk. And so I decided to make it my job to help, but I did it in a totally integrated community way and I applied the approach I learned from working at the Exploratorium of hands-on science and asking questions and doing interviews and having a kind of iterative approach or a very experimental approach to anything that we did. Like, okay, so what the goal is, is to create a way for people to regenerate their own environment and be economically healthy. And so how can we do that? And then make a big list of all the things. And one of the things was whale watching. Okay, well, what does that take? Well, we gotta know what's here. And it turned out no one had ever studied the whales there or any marine mammals. So I got, um, I, I, fun, I fundraised, I raised $20,000 from my friends and family in the US, just asked everybody I knew to help uh, start this project with me to do a whale study. And I went to the community in the village and said, I really want to um, help you guys. I see that you're struggling and I've noticed the fishing isn't as good as it used to be. And did you know that sometimes people will pay money to go whale watching and you know we could do that, but we got to figure out what's out there and if there's enough whales to support it. And the community was into it. And I'd already made friends with a lot of them along the years. And so um, I already had a little bit of a, a connection in there. And I had seen how it went, like most research projects that I participated in, it was like scientists would come in, it was the parachute science thing. You know, they come in and they study and they stay in a little house and they get really close and they collect very tight data and then they publish it. And then they go back 10 years later and they're bummed out because their place is wrecked and um, the community never knew they were there and there's not much connection at all. And so I knew that the key to doing anything that was going to be real and lasting would be to do everything we did in a very, very integrated way. So I lived in the village, obviously. And then um, my first year, I was just by myself. But um, that was in 2014 when I started my project. And um, when I started, I asked the team or I asked the community, um, I said, you know, I care about you and I'm worried about this. And I think we could do something with ecotourism and we, to do that, we would need to study the whales. And the community said, all right, well, if you wanna help the fishery in the region, you can't try and focus on old fishermen. Like, it's just like, I thought that would be a lot of fun to hang out with old fishermen because <laughs> I love hanging out with old fishermen. But they said, you have to focus on the kids and the young men and the women if you wanna make a difference in a lasting way in this community. And so I'm not really an educator. I mean, I am and I'm not, I don't live to teach and I'm not a big kid person, like kids like me, but I don't get all inspired by hanging out with kids all the time. Uh, so I hired a bunch of people who are total kid people and who live to teach and who are, I hired only scientists who have a strong um, 
love of inner of of sharing their science and understand that like when you get off the boat and someone wants to talk to you about anything like you just talk to them you know you don't worry about getting running back to the office and getting your your data in like you have to get the data done but the most important thing is to show up and be available to the community to serve the needs of the community and ask them and let them sort of drive how it's going to go and so I always hired, um, I try to make my team almost entirely Mexican. I pay everybody and um, half of my team is local people. And so um, as we've gone through the years, we've collected a lot of data around whales and dolphins. And we've made some changes to the way laws are in the US about whale protection. Um, especially off the coast of California. And so we've made some really good scientific changes, but the big thing that's happened over the past nine years is in our community in Barra de Potosí, it went from a little fishing village to that was very, very much struggling to a place that is fully identified with being a place of nature and natural riches and it's ecotourism driven. And at this point, there's women who are trained uh, walking tour guides and they're doing cooking classes. And we've trained in the whole area, 75 captains to be safe whale watch captains. And they're out there like really protecting the whales. And like we had some shrimp boats out a couple of weeks ago and um, the, there were a lot of dead turtles that we were seeing and a stranded dolphin and uh, the whales were not around. And we didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything, but the WhatsApp network of fishermen were like, this is not cool. It's not okay that there's these shrimp boats and they're really, our tourists on our boats don't like to see it and it's not good for nature and we need to do something. And so uh, the, the fishermen were the ones who sent a request to, or a report to the, the harbor master to say that there are five uh, shrimp boats fishing heavily in a place where the whales are and it's impacting them. And so then our only role was to give a map to the Capitania del Puerto or the harbor master to say, this is where we have seen whales and dolphins over the past nine years, but it was the fishermen that were doing the actual protection and conservation work rather than us. And so that means we are able to maintain a neutral thing and hold space for conservation and um, uh, unity and people being leaders, but we're not the ones that are out there on the front lines, like stopping the shrimping boats from going or anything like that. Cause it's frankly, just it's dangerous and it's violent out there. And um, if one person sticks their neck out, it's not going to work out. But if a whole big group of fishermen as a front come forward and do that, then something can really happen. And then they bring the media with them. And so uh, the, the fishermen bring the media and then that forces a move on the part of the government to then that forces a change in law. And uh, so the people drive the, the thing. Wow. There's like so much of that. I would love to break down. Um, I think I would love to go back to almost square one. So you had this idea, you see this need in this community that you love. You've been there for over a decade and you're like, I, I, you are my people. I love coming here and visiting you and seeing you and I see what's going on. So when this idea came, of like, I see a need and I'm feeling a need. And this could be through ecotourism. How did that actual moment go? So, I mean, at this point, it sounds like then you have done a lot of these whale expeditions, like with a whale scientist. So maybe you already have that nugget in your mind. How, how did it get from idea to actual fruition? And did you have any pushback along the way in this very vulnerable part of getting this project launched? Um, so I didn't really know how it was all going to go. I didn't, I didn't map it out in a super, super detailed way. What I did was I aimed and I made a list of some of the things that I would like to see and some of the ways that we could get there and then just broke it down into baby steps. And so one of the things I saw was, um, healthy, sustainable community-driven ecotourism. And so 
Um, I knew to get there, there needed to be that um, very, very deep knowledge and connection with uh, wildlife around them. And I know that scientists are the ones that get to spend the most time with the animals that they love. And that's partly why they are so invested in them is they get to have all that time out there with them really, really studying them. And so I knew the way to do it would be to make science cool and to show people what a cool tool science can be. And for me getting out there with one of my captains, his name is Arturo and I've been working with him since 2014. And he always runs the hydrophone and Fisher, he was a fisherman and, and fishermen are really, really good scientists because they tend to be as they're, they have to spend a lot of time just being quiet and patient and paying attention and try things and test and test and test. And, um, they're, they're robust, uh, they're, they're detail-oriented, um, they they're happy to be alone, uh, they can do repetitive work, uh, they can deal with boredom really well. A lot of the things that are really the nitty-gritty of data collection is it makes a, a fisherman and a scientist have a lot of the qualities in common. So Arturo was out there with me in the year 2014, and every day he's dropping the hydrophone and saying the date, the time, every half hour, drop the hydrophone and listen for whale song and then reel it back up and then keep driving, keep looking for whales half hour later on the dot, drop the hydrophone again. And he didn't really understand what we were doing, but he, um, I mean, he had only got to like seventh grade in school, but he, he was doing the work with me and he was committed. And so at the end of the season, we had heard whale song and we had not heard whale song. And it was like, oh, it was the end of March and we hadn't heard any whale song in like a week. And he was like, oh, I get it. So, so you, we didn't know before when the whales sing and when they stop singing. And now we have, we do know that because we've been dropping the hydrophone every day. And so now we can say the whales start singing at this time and the whales start, stop singing at this time because of the hydrophone. So that's what we've been doing all season. And I was like, yes, science. Yes, that's what we're doing. And uh, it was just exciting. And he lit up and I lit up and, and it was one of those moments. So um, yeah. Um, so I didn't have a big, I knew that we needed to figure out what was out there and we needed to cultivate an, uh, a strong sense of stewardship and connection among the community. And the way to do that would be to go through, as the community told me, they said, you've got to go through the kids and the women and so, and the young men who are, do, who are starting out in life. And so now the ones who are the tour guides are the, the young men. They're the ones on the boats that are out there. And um, their wives are all coming out on whale watch boats with us now. This year, we took 50 women out whale watching and we did uh -huh. last year. Many of them had never been out and never had been on a boat. And uh, every kid in the village has been out. And then beyond our little village, we take, we reach like 2000 kids a year in Ixtapa and Zihuatanejo and all of the surrounding villages. And we take kids from mountains down to the ocean for their first ever boat ride to have this big experience. So um, yeah, so, so the education thing was obviously, I think everybody who works in science or in conservation gets to a place where education becomes absolutely critical. And you realize that, and it can't just be, I mean, there's this, the sort of the drop in drop out like stuff where you can go to classes and give a talk and, and see who's got a spark in their eye and take a person out to see. And that's a little bit deeper. Uh, you can do a weekend workshop and you can do, um, in-depth uh, program with a bunch of people who are have shown themselves to be pretty invested. Uh, you can do weekly workshops uh, where people can kind of build, 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 build. And then the other thing you can do is have an informal availability. And we've always done that. We've always had open door policy. And there's usually kids in our office who are helping to clean the gear, or checking out what we're doing. And it's just important uh, because a lot of those kids are now like working at turtle camps or becoming scientists. They're going to college and they want to be biologists now and or they're becoming trained well wash guides. So uh, there definitely is like a pretty deep connection in that way. So we knew that education had to be something and we had to make it easy for people to win, right? I mean, set people up for success. And so um, asking the community, 
how we could help and finding that shared goal of a restored nature where everybody wins and everybody benefits um, was the place to go. So when it got hot, because it did, it does get hot, it gets hard. I mean, there's not always people, not everybody's on your side and you're never going to get everybody to love what you do and love who you are. And there's going to be people who just don't like you and people who just don't like what you're doing. And um, we just, I mean, I found that we just have to be okay with it, you know, and, and like keep an open door policy and let people in and keep inviting people, even the ones who don't like us, like what we're doing in so that they know that they're a part of the solution as well. And then the community drives the, the decision-making process about what their projects are going to be each year. Wow. Okay. So are, so I guess the people that were giving the most pushback, were they from the community itself and would like come to you and say that they didn't like what you were doing or, or what are these examples that you're talking about right now? Um, so let's see, uh, who are the haters? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag who are the haters? So, I mean, I guess you can look at it. Like there's a lot of different ways that people cannot like the project. One is that I'm not a scientist. I don't have a degree in science and um, I'm making this up as I go along. And I have really, really great advisors who are scientists and who keep me honest and rigorous and I hire scientists, but um, my project is very touchy feely and it's very emotionally driven and it prioritizes uh, emotional and social connection over data. And so we drop data opportunities for being good whale watch models. For example, when we're out on the water and we, if we're with a whale for more than a half hour, we don't stay with it. Even if we haven't um, collected all the data we want about that whale, if it hasn't showed us its tail and given us an ID. So we follow the safe whale watch laws in Mexico, which are should be 240 meters if you're not an authorized whale watch boat and you can get up to 60 meters to a whale if you're an authorized whale watch boat and you never spend more than 60 minutes with a whale so that they get lots of space and time to themselves. And so we've always prioritized being a good role model over being a um, getting the most data possible. And we don't collect biopsies. We only do passive uh, research. So so if the if the whale jumps and it uh, has already shown it's its tail, what happens is they slough off some skin. And so then we can collect the skin and then we can get genetic data from the skin of the whale that way. But that only has given us like 35 whale DNA samples over the past nine years, which is 35 more than ever existed. But if we went up and stuck a dart into every single whale, we would have hundreds by now. And I feel really proud that we didn't do that. We, we collected only passive data because for me, I always imagine what it will look like if a hundred of us were doing the same thing. And for the scientists to be like, oh, trust me, I'm a scientist. I can do this now. You stay away from the whale. I'm gonna go be over there with the whale up super close, but you can't because you don't have special training. And then you're a fisherman, you live at sea, you've spent 10,000 hours more than that person over there has around the animals, like it just doesn't, it doesn't square up. So um, I think that uh, there's some scientists that, especially in the beginning, didn't really respect our approach there. It was just kind of a head scratcher for them. Uh, and then as we collect more and more data, um, our, our approach is working in that we've filled in a big black hole of knowledge about what marine mammals are in our whole state. And that's cool. And we've also built a model of community-driven conservation that is working so that in 10 years, if I'm not there, the community will still be doing this work. And the kids and their kids are going to be following this relationship with nature that we've really been cultivating, where we celebrate the arrival of the whales with respect and appreciation and gratitude. 
and um, the kids are rigorous. Like they know the names of whales and dolphins in Latin, like a killer whale swam in front of their school a couple of years ago. And you only see a killer whale once every few years. And the kids came running up to us in the street and said, we saw a killer whale. And it, I know you're going to say it's not a killer whale. You're going to say it's a pilot whale or a false killer whale, but it was a killer whale. It had a white saddle patch and the fin was shaped like this. And it went on and on and on. And I was like, yes, I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> and, I mean, so that was really cool that they're, they've learned to look deeply at life and to collect data around the things that they have, but also they have a passion and a sense of identity. And it's like, these are our whales and uh, the women make awesome art about whales. I mean, you're looking at the, the background behind me and I have all this art on the walls that the women in the village made about whales. And they did those? Uh, yeah. Stunning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they make great art. We just had a big art fair yesterday in uh, the village and uh, over a thousand people came and bought the handicrafts of the women. And it's all like handmade nature themed art, art that people come to buy. So it's um, the village really today is a place that prides itself on that. But as it becomes wealthier, um, there's always conflicts. I mean, when, when people go through phases of growth, it's hard, you know, I mean, and, and people get competitive and then there's infighting and COVID hasn't made it easy. I mean, we can't gather and have big healing times together that allow us to just be together in, in an informal way and kind of work it out. Um, like it doesn't really, you can't really work stuff out in workshops and meetings. Like you need to work things out over a beer. Right. And, you know, over some food and get together once a month and just eat some tacos and shoot, shoot the breeze. It's like, that's really when the friendship is like, you know, you build that friendship over food and then that builds trust. And then that trust is what leads people to be willing to make leaps of faith when times are hard. And when you haven't asked, and if you haven't put that time in, you can spend down all of that social capital, just like that. So not having had that time to be together, um, it, it goes quickly. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, um, yeah, like this year when I got, I, I stayed back in Oregon where I am today in January, and I'm usually there from January through March, but this year Omicron was here and I'm like a one woman super spreader potentially. Like all I do when I'm down there is go from meeting to meeting to meeting and bring together little groups of people to drink beer and eat tacos and talk about their vision for nature and mostly listen. And uh, so I just decided I needed to stay home during Omicron. I didn't want to be a spreader. And so, I mean, of course I'm vaccinated, but I just, it, it, there's not, it wasn't the thing to do. So I missed the first part of the season. And when I got down there, there was a lot of infighting between the guides and my team had already kind of started their own dynamic. That was a great dynamic, but it wasn't going the direction I needed it to go in terms of the project because they'd been running it in one direction and I needed to like make some adjustments with uh, getting the data done and the education programs met in the way that we had set out to do. And um, so, yeah, I mean, so there was definitely some hard times when I got there and, um, I, I, uh, I like asked all the guides from the little village bar de Potosí to come together and have a beer with me and no one came and they always come to like have a meeting with me. Cause I have good meetings. Like I always have snacks and beer and like we stick to <laughs> time and we start on time and we don't go more than an hour. And, uh, they're generally a pretty happy and satisfying thing. So I was like, wow, what happened here? And so um, I heard, I wasn't able to go around to them. I had to like have one of my team members who's local ask the captains what's up and they and whether it was a thing between them that they didn't want to be together if they were mad at me. And they were mad at me because we had been giving all of these science studies. We have a, a hundred hour survey we're doing for NOAA this year. And we hired Arturo, my original captain to do all 10 surveys of 10, 10 hour days instead of passing it around. And so that was showing favoritism and giving him all the money. And we don't usually do that. And it was a mistake. Like I should have 
worked with all of the scientists like we do when we take women out and kids out and when we do tourism, we, we cycle through. And so you get to go sometimes with Arturo who's been out for nine years and collected 2000 hours of data with us. And sometimes you're going with a first year guy who has not ever taken anyone out whale watching before. And so, but to be fair and to give that new guy that experience, you have to invest in spending that time, even if their boat is like funky and their, their motor stinks and it's super loud and it's very uncomfortable and it's pretty leaky and there's no shade and, you know, and they are hard to talk to. It's like, it doesn't matter. You still have to like be fair. And so I had to basically go around to all of the guides one by one and just acknowledge that, you know, we had shown favoritism and that I'd done it because I was tired and it was just easier to just hire Arturo and I wasn't there to hear their grievances and to correct it early on in the season. And, uh, you know, that's just what happened. So, you know, there's these little things and, and you just, so, so, I mean, it's never, it's never easy, you know, I mean, there's always stuff, but I had to get over. Um, I had this thought when I started out, that's a very, um, that, that I had to grow out of. And that was that I thought that because I was doing good work and I was giving so much to the community that I had earned something, I had earned their trust, or I had earned the right for them to be a certain way with me. And the truth is that I have, I will never have earned the, the right for anything. Nobody owes me anything. And if I think me being there and doing this work means I am owed anything at all from anybody, then I need to look at what I'm doing there. And so um, when I realized that and I recognized like, well, what am I doing down there? Why am I doing this work? And I'm doing it because it gives me meaning. Like it gives me meaning and it gives me connection. It gives me like, I love problem solving. I love asking questions. I love being in nature. I love connecting people. I love making space for people to transform. And so I have a dream job where I get to do all of that every day, all day long. And so I am so lucky because I've created a reality where I get to like be around my favorite animals and like get to be around really smart, emotionally intelligent people and um, have a little team of superstars and, and give them the skills to become great leaders. And, um, you know, I just, I have such a good life and, and I'm so fortunate and anything that comes my way from the community, it's not because I earned it, you know, I mean, that's anybody, anybody can give that, but nobody owes me anything. And so I had to like go through that. And I think that that's a developmental process that a lot of people go through when they work in conservation. And uh, you've got to get over the, the great white savior thing and look at your why and just be really, really honest about it. And um, because if it's coming from a place where you, you're doing it for praise or you're doing it to look good or you're doing it so everyone will like you, um, it's just like, that's a very hungry why. And it leads to discontentment and exhaustion has been what I've found, you know, because I, I mean, I have all of that in me too. I'm no saint, you know, and I like acknowledgement and these sorts of things. But if that is deep down the reason why I'm doing it, I, it's not a sustainable way to operate is what I found, you know? Yes. Wow. That was so Oh, powerful. Like, I just kind of want to like sit just like absorbing that information. And, th and that only comes from going through it and experiencing it and going through hard times. Like that was a perfect example. Like, I can only imagine how you felt. I mean, you just explained that so well, because you've been able to go through it. But to hear that your guide team was personally upset with you I mean, no matter how far any of us have come, you know, in our own personal development, that had to hurt and that had to feel pretty rough. And then humbling yourself to go through why, like, why are they mad? And again, humbling yourself enough to go and apologize to everybody. Like that is, that is an amazing example of being a true leader in my eyes and, and what you actually stand for in creating this entire project, because someone who might have more of an ego probably wouldn't have done that. But this means so much to you 
that you were willing to go through that and to go apologize and say, I'm sorry. And I was like, I will do better next time. And, and please let's come back together and be a good team. So I do have to ask, did, did everybody, or did most people, um, but what's the word I'm looking for? Did they come back around? Did they, you know, say it's okay, you know, I'm, I'm back on your team or how did that next stage go after that? Yeah. I mean, ever since then I've been, I've had a chance to be out on the boat with basically all of them and just to rebuild that, that, uh, that, that little bit of time. So, um, we haven't had a chance to all sit down and have a beer and, uh, that's, uh, I think, a pretty important thing. And unfortunately, this season has been very compressed for me uh, this year in particular because I got here in February in Mexico. And then I was there for two weeks to run a bunch of stuff. And then I had an expedition with 10 people who are foreigners who came down and we did a whole bunch of whale watching. But um, we were out with, with guests on the boat every day. And so, um, and then we had another little mini expedition and then we had an art fair and now I'm here. So <laughs> having, we're right in the middle of it. So, yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll have time, but I'm not going anywhere. And I just know that there's going to be years when, when everybody loves us and there's going to be years when they don't, and I have to not do it so that everybody loves us, but find my joy and what feeds me in a deeper place than that and let people be where they are and, um, and just hold that space for everybody to show up and, and share and be available with, you know, a cold beer and or mineral water or whatever, uh, so that you can just come in and talk to me anytime, you know? Yeah, that's so powerful. And I really appreciate you going through that example because not many people share that kind of stuff. Like that is real. That is what having a project is actually going to be about. It's not just about the whales. Yeah. Yeah. Or the love is the whales and we're all here because of the whales, but at the end of the day, it's it's people that we need to make sure are happy and thriving and want to protect the whales. And I so to spin it a little bit, since you have been down there and your organization has been down there for a while taking so much data, I would love to geek out a little bit on science for a second. What are some okay. of the discoveries that you have made? Like you said, no marine mammals were studied in this area before this project came to be. So yeah, geek out with us a little bit. What have you found? Okay, uh, so we uh, the main uh, animal that we studied was humpback whales. And when we started out, we knew that there were humpback whales there, but there were two theories. And one was that they were a part of the mainland Mexico population, which is the whales that you see a lot of around Puerto Vallarta and Baja. And they go down to that area and then they feed in around Monterey Bay and San Francisco. Um, and then sometimes even we'll go as far north as to British Columbia and Oregon, Washington as well. Then there's another group of whales called Central America whales, and they come by Guerrero and go all the way to all over Central America. And they go, they breed down there and then they eat up in Southern California. So we didn't know if our area was a place where humpback whales come to if this is a breeding ground or if it was just a migratory route, um, if this was like an extension of the mainland Mexico group or if it was the northernmost limit of the Central America group or a migratory corridor or some combination. And so nine years of data has shown us that our whales are probably more like the Central America whales and that most of them are seen feeding in Southern California than traveling farther north in terms of percentage wise of the total number of whales we see. But there are only like 500 Central America whales. So they're a very, they're a genetically distinct um, group of, of animals that has, uh, it, so it's pretty important to keep them protected. Something to share is that humpback whales always come back and give birth where they're born and they come back and mate where they're born as well. And so whoever is mating and being born in our area, that's their home. So the fact that our area 
turns out to be a place where it's not just a passing through place. We see tiny, tiny baby whales that were probably just born that week there. And we see moms hanging out um, and we see uh, adult males coming through every year at the same time. And we see them again and again. We now know that yes, some of them are bombing right through to Central America and some of them are going back and forth between Puerto Vallarta and us. But some of them, it's their spot and they just like Zihuatanejo and they're gonna come down and that's their spot. So that was a pretty important thing. And when we made that discovery, then we were able to, we then studied the tails of the whales and looked for entanglement marks because mm -hmm. there had been a lot of entanglement issues with crab pots off the coast of California. So we, now we know we've got this entangled, we, this distinct population segment of endangered Central America whales. Turns out over half of them have likely entanglement scars from being caught up in crab pots. So those are the survivors. So as a result, um, we shared our data with NOAA and um, the National Marine Fishery Service, and they changed crabbing laws in the US so that when the whales are in their feeding area, um, there's no crabbing. And so people don't crab in the summer anymore in California because our whales are there. And then when they're down with us in the winter, that's when people go crabbing. And it's a win-win because crab meat fills out the shell all the way in the winter. It's sweeter and bigger and you get a higher price per pound for winter crab. So it drives the price up in the, at that time of year. And so the fishermen do better and the whales are benefiting. So that was, uh, that was one thing that was pretty fun. Um, we also have made some really cool discoveries about rough tooth dolphins. They're like oh. the port. Yeah. Do you know about rough tooth dolphins? No, but I, that's a fun name. Teach me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they're like the border collies of the dolphin world. They're so smart. Like we often joke that they're probably studying us as much as we're studying them. Like they come up to the boat and they side eye you and they like show you the fish in their mouth. And they're, they're very, um, they're very speculative. And, uh, I feel like they're having dolphin conferences about humans down there. And uh, so they're, they're hard to find in most places of the world. They're generally pretty offshore and they're really problematic, like so many smart animals um, in fishing nets. And so they get themselves in trouble out in the purse signing tuna fishery because they are, they're full of hubris and they're like, oh, I'm going to jump that net and get a fish and then jump back out. And they'll just take all kinds of risks and, be really creative in their approach, but they get themselves in trouble a lot. Mm. And so we studied, we happen to have a really solid population of rough tooth dolphins where we live. So we uh, studied their fins. We, we collect um, IDs of rough tooth dolphins by getting to know them by their individual fins. And we figured out how rough tooth dolphin societies work. And what we figured out is that the question was, do they stick with their birth family and travel in little groups? Or are they completely dispersed or is there some sort of a mix? And what we identified was that they're, uh, it's called a fission fusion society. And so they like, they're, they're like, they have a bunch of different friends in different groups and they'll go and hang out with this gang and then go hang out with that gang. And some of them like will be seen together up to five times over a period of time. And they know each other as individuals. They have like a signature whistle and they know each other. And um, they also, so they, they, they kind of fuse and fizz, right? <laughs> back and forth and back and forth uh, between different groups. And so in terms of conservation implications, what that means is that if you scoop up a whole pod of uh, rough tooth dolphins in your fishing net and kill them, you're not necessarily gonna be destroying an entire distinct family genetic unit, you know, which doesn't mean that they should be scooping up the dolphins, but that's interesting information to know. Um, like orcas live their whole life in total familial contact with each other. And they don't have a lot of genetic diversity within their tight family group. And so that's a different model than what the rough tooth dolphins seem to show. So those Whoa. are a couple things, yeah. I didn't even know that species existed, let alone all of those fun things. <laughs> oh, they're so cool. Yeah, they're really, really fun. Yeah, we were just watching one. Um, 
teaching its kid to catch a snake. Like they were, yeah, they like to fish for mahi mahi and the bigger fish, but there was a baby and two adults and they were teaching it to catch, uh, they were practicing on a sea snake. And so they were like grabbing it and the baby would bring it to the two adults and then like let it go. And the poor little snake would swim away frantically. And then it would come running back with the, with the fish again, or the snake again and again and again. And then there was a mahi mahi and just bam, baby nailed it and brought it over and they tore it up and gobbled it. So it was a uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. That is an amazing visual too. Just <laughs> <laughs> day. Well, well, and it's incredible. neat when you're out there and you're seeing something and you don't, you think maybe no one has ever seen this before, you know, and uh, you're, you're, when you're getting that movement out there, it's pretty special. Oh my God, that sounds phenomenal. So what would you say then, since you've done so much in your life, I feel like we need to sit down with some drinks because I really want to hear some of these grease stories and some of the other wild things you've done, but that's for another time. What would you say in all of your journey you are most proud of? Um, I think I feel most proud of that I've... Um, I found a way to put together my random pieces of the things that I love and the things that I'm good at into a way, into something that actually makes the world a better place. And like I was on the plane flying back to Oregon yesterday and there was some turbulence and I was like, well, if the plane went down, it would be okay. I mean, I don't want to die, but my life feels very complete. And I, there's so much to do. I, I mean, I really want to write a book about all of this and I want to keep going and I want to know where it goes. But if I got wiped off the earth tomorrow, I made a place better. Like I, I, I help people become leaders and everyone who has touched my project as a team member or a captain or a kid, like they're, they're better people for having worked with my project. And I just, I don't know very many people who get to say that it's, it's, oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it is no joke out there in this world that we're living in today. And if I didn't have this project, I, I would be in so much more despair, but I'm, I'm so grateful that my version of chopping wood and carrying water every day is um, helping people be leaders and, and just doing these little baby steps. So I would say that for me, just holding that vision and that faith, like having, getting, learning how to make a vision and then how to follow through on it and how to put it together and believing in myself, even though I don't have any of the qualifications that say I should be doing this kind of work um, is something I feel very proud of. And it's my hope that people, other people can learn from that, that you don't have to be like a special this or that, or have your qualifications. And like, I'm gift, I'm blessed that I'm not a perfectionist. And all of my work is like B, sometimes B minus work. <laughs> I mean, I'm really, really prolific and I put stuff out and sometimes I feel embarrassed that it's not perfect, but it's out there and done is better than perfect. And I just, I want to be an inspiration for other people so that other people are willing to pick up an oar and pull because we all have to, like, it's, it's not, we, we don't get to choose anymore. Like we all need to do our part and it can be the most random thing. Like it does not have to be like, for me, it's about whales and making commute, building community and um, making big impossible projects happen. Like I love that stuff. And so that's where I, my joy is, but your joy can be anything. And it's just finding a way to put together your joy with your skill set in a way that truly helps the world and then following and being flexible with the uh, environment around you so that you can you can uh, bend with it and and move with it when things shift. Wow, that was amazing advice. 
And one thing that I just so love about your story, and I'm really glad we had a chance to highlight, is you have a very non-traditional story in this field. And it's beautiful. And it, I really, just like you said, I hope it inspires anybody who's listening that you don't have to have all the degrees. You don't have to have all the accolades. You don't have to have a PhD behind your name to go do this work. It's all about great collaboration and having your heart in the right place and then just getting shit done. Like just going out and doing it. Like nothing's going to be done unless you do it. Go go outside of your comfort zone. Go just whatever it is that it's your, that you've been thinking about for years. Just go tackle it and see what happens. The worst thing that that'll happen is that it doesn't work out. And then at least, you know, that's the worst thing. Like, okay, there's worse things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to take care of yourself. I mean, that's yes. the other thing. I mean, I know that um, I've gone through periods of intense exhaustion that have been exacerbated by COVID and I'm going to be 50 this year and I am learning more and more and more how to take better care of myself and to take that time for rest and that whole oxygen on yourself before other people thing is so for real. And the more you take care of yourself while also really paying attention to, are you taking care of yourself and are you doing your part? Like balancing that is super, super, super important. And um, I feel like that's something that like my generation's not as good at. And um, like, I think we just got to screw this like martyr saint thing out there. And like, I, I think that we all have like to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of each other really well. And if we're depleted, we're not going to be able to do that. So I do think that that's super important to remember. And, um, you know, there's nothing cool about workaholism and exhaustion. And um, there's everything cool about being juicy and available because you're really well fed and, you know, finding your joy and letting your joy and your curiosity guide you uh, toward your, your life's true journey, where, wherever you are, because if you're in your joy and you're, you're, you're living in a way that's getting you juiced up, then, um, you know, you still get sleep, drink water, all of that, but also having that because every who is it is elizabeth gilbert that talks about shit sandwiches like every job has shit sandwiches and like i eat so many shit sandwiches every day (laughs) and like i have thousands of emails that i have to send over the next few days and the fundraising and the reports and like you know i don't mind fundraising anymore i used to um but for every sexy dolphin story that i get to share or happy community thing like there are hundreds of shit sandwiches that I've eaten. And so having that joy and that base of self-care, like for me, it looks like a meditation practice. It looks like going for a walk every day. It's um, about getting less of sleep and eating healthy foods and being around animals and um, having friends outside of my work um, that are not anything to do with my work. And then having my work uh, community be people who I just love and respect and admire. Um, That allows me to show up and just be a really loving and generous person. And so then I can make all the good stuff happen. That's such great advice. I think that this field is pretty much anyone who's been in it for a while. Passion fatigue is real and it's very easy to just exhaust yourself. So those reminders are fantastic because it doesn't matter. I mean, I know that I could, I need to hear that too. And, and I need to remind myself. So just hearing other people say it out loud, it it just makes you, makes you feel, I don't know, what's the word allowed to take that time to take that break. And, um, so I'm really glad you said that as someone who has gotten so far in your journey and has made as much impact as you had that like the number one is you and then you can pour yourself even better into everybody else. So that was yeah. Really I mean, I asked um, my heroes. I mean, the people that were in their seventies and had been doing this work for so much longer, how they're able to do so much more. And some of them are not in their seventies, but people who are highly, highly productive and they're so relaxed. Like that's the thing that I've noticed is that they tend to be relaxed and they, they tend to be unapologetic about taking that time for themselves. And I was like, okay, that's hard, especially 
as a woman, you know, and like, as I just, uh, but I just had to learn how to, like, I know how to relax, but not to perpetuate the um, exhausted giver. It's just like, fuck that, you know, right. that's not, that's not what we're doing here. That's, that's not sustainable. And no. work here is like the work of, of helping people to connect with nature and each other in a way that leads to a regenerated planet is like, that's long-term work. That's not something that can be done. I mean, you know, so yeah. So why not do it between naps, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Taking care of your cup and then filling it up for somebody else. I absolutely love that. So how can somebody get a hold of you? You are an amazing person and I can see someone just be like, oh my gosh, I need to know more. I need to know more. So do you have like websites, email, social media? If someone listening, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my project is called Whales of Guerrero. It's uh, G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O. And our website is whalesinmexico.com. And so finding us through the website whalesinmexico.com is a great way. We have a very uh, active Facebook page and Instagram as well. And so you can look up Whales of Guerrero on Instagram or on Facebook. And so, and then on our website, we have a very fun newsletter. And so I send out, I'm about to make a couple of pretty cool announcements actually. So um, yeah, so so signing up for our newsletter through our website on whalesinmexico.com is a great way to be in touch, to really get the inside scoop on what's going on and hear where we're going. And uh, if you wanna get involved, that would definitely be the way to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Katarina, for sitting down with me and sharing your amazing story. And I can't wait to get this out. Thanks for hosting. I really, really appreciate you inviting me to be on. So thank you so much for uh, giving me a chance to share my story. And I hope it helps you guys out there um, to know that you don't have to be a certain way to make great things happen in the world. Mm, and you are the perfect example of that. So again, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>